I'm, I'm going to talk for a while. We'll let Pam sit down, and then, and then Pam will come up, and, and she'll share some of her thoughts. Uh, let, let's pray together as, as we want to open Scripture together. Jesus, as we read your word, you promise and you desire to uh, reveal yourself to us through it. God, you desire to open our eyes to see and understand a world from a different perspective. God, you desire to allow us to embrace and understand your love and your care for us. So Jesus, I want to ask that, that that would happen here today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys have your Bibles, you want to you want to participate with me in reading. We're gonna we're gonna read um, the the Palm Sunday account that takes place in Luke. So Luke chapter nineteen, verse twenty eight uh, to forty four. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners came to them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied. The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along the road, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So one of the things that stood out to me as, as I read the account this year, and, and, and it, it's all connected with the prophecy tied to this event. This is something that God knew was going to happen long before it actually happened. Let's look at it in Zechariah 9, verse 9. They, they allude to this in, in, in the reading that we, that we had. So the apostles were quoting from the Old Testament, Right? And and Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think it's significant that Jesus' coming had been long ago prophesied before he actually came. So why, why is that significant? I think it's significant in, in, in a whole bunch of different ways, and, and I want to work my way through that. But one of the things is, with this passage that we read, people understood that the coming Messiah was going to be a king. 
So what kind of king was coming? It was going to be a military king. It was going to be a king to what? To free them from the oppression that they had. So they were under oppression by Romans, and they had been under oppression by a whole bunch of other groups of people prior to to the Romans, and they wanted to be free because God had promised them that they would be free. God had promised them. um, and, 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 And so when Jesus came... Everything said, okay, this is going to be the military leader. We are going to be set free. And, and, and in fact, they were so determined that there was, this was going to be the, the case. If you read earlier in the gospel accounts, the crowds even tried to make Jesus king by force. They were so eager and desperate for the king to come. They grabbed him and said, we're going to make you king. You're going to be king of the, these people, right? Because they wanted to be set free and they wanted to be set free now. Another prophecy that I think about is in Daniel chapter 9. So if you guys want to join with me in going to the book of Daniel chapter 9. And I want to give just a very quick little context here in Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel had been studying in the book of Jeremiah. And he had been studying because they were in captivity right now with our Daniel was with the people in captivity, right? And he, he had been promoted to a, an office or a position with the Babylonians. Um, but that's where they were at the time that this was taking place. And Daniel was reading in the book of Jeremiah. And what was he reading? Okay, before I go there, you guys can join me there as well. So go to Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Does, does anybody have Jeremiah 29, verse 11 memorized? Does anybody know what that verse is? Okay, what is it, Jen? Okay, so uh, if you couldn't hear, it's, it's, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And, and, and it's that section, and we love to quote that verse, right? Like, it's good, it's a feel-good verse in so many different ways. Um, th- this is the area that Daniel's reading, but it's not this. It's, it, it's what was coming before that verse, uh, in, in verse 10 that Daniel was reading. And, and Jeremiah had written a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And, and in verse 10, he said, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you to bring you back to this place. What is this place? Back to Jerusalem. Because they, they've, they've been separated from Jerusalem and they, they aren't there anymore. And then it goes on to say, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So what, this makes me think of a whole bunch of different things. First off, God had a plan. The plan was very clear right from the beginning what he was going to do. And this isn't a plan for you individually. This is a plan for the whole world that God had. Right? He knew what would happen in the garden. He knew what would be next. He knew that we would need a savior. He knew we would sin. He knew we would be separated. Right? And, and, and God very clearly says, I know the plans I have for you. And plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Now you think about this and you think of all the things that happened to Israel over the time. Were they always prospered? Not a chance. Like they lived in all sorts of horrible places, kicked out of their, their country, the temple being destroyed, so many different things have, having happened, right? Did they in those moments feel like they were prospering? No, no, not at all. There's no way... And, and so Jeremiah, in writing this, is just saying, look, guys, God knows the plans that he has for you. 
You know, and it's not to harm you. It's to give you a life and it's to give you a future. Okay, so that's the context. That's what Daniel is studying and that's what Daniel is thinking about now when they are in exile in Babylon. And so, so what's Daniel doing? He, he is there, he, he, read, he read in, in uh, Jeremiah 29 verse 10, which talked about uh, the number of years that, that they would be captive to the Babylons when 70 years are complete for Babylon, right? So he was saying, okay, God, you said it would be 70 years and now we are waiting for the time that we're gonna be set free. You promised this, I believe this is gonna happen. What's Daniel doing at that time? He is repenting. He's repenting for his sins. He's repenting for the sins of the people. Read through sometime on your own, Daniel 9, starting at verse four to verse 17. It's just amazing the heart that Daniel is having, praying, longing for God's promise to be fulfilled, his word to come, and repenting of his own sins, repenting of the sins of the people. It's, it's, it's a beautiful heart posture. There's a number of songs that are written out, out of that section there. And, and, then, and then we get into a very specific prophecy that comes tied with that. So starting at Daniel 9, verse 20. And it says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin in the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of, e- of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. So the heart of Daniel, he's repenting. He's calling out to God. He's God, you will fulfill your promise. I long for you to fulfill your promise. And then God sends an angel, Gabriel, to come to him and and to give him a little picture of what's gonna happen. The purpose of the picture isn't that he's gonna understand everything. The perfect of the picture is so that he can feel cared for and loved by God. You know, very briefly, in verse 24, it says, 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city, so 77s, this is referring to 70 groups of seven years. So 490 years is what this is referring to. And, and he says, at the end of 490 years, transgression will be put to an end. Sorry, trans... Let me read it here. 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. What would it mean for all sin to be put to an end? Are, are we living in those times today? So, so that's my key question. Is, is, is that the time that we're living in today now? Is that what was fulfilled by Jesus when he came? Or is this something different that he's talking about? Well, let's think about that together. To finish transgressions, to put an end to sin. Has sin been put an end to today? Like, does sin still happen? No, no, so that hasn't happened. To atone for all wickedness. 
No, we still have wickedness around us. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Are we living in a time of everlasting righteousness? No, we're not. To seal up vision and prophecy, meaning to fulfill everything that's ever been decreed, that God has decreed, no, we're not there either. And so this is a time that God is talking about in the future. This is a time that's going to come. This is the time that we are all longing for, where, where an end to sin will come. And, and this is all the plans that, that, that he talks about, the plans to prosper you. And, and I, I think it's just a beautiful picture. And then all of this begins to tie to what's going on in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus comes and Jesus enters. So why, so why is prophecy here significant for me? And I want to just give you a couple key things. First off, um, I don't think God gave us these prophecies so that we can pinpoint something or a specific event for a specific time for our own specific purposes. We have seen people try to take prophecies and pinpoint it to a specific time for a specific purpose for their own gain in many, in many circumstances. And I don't think that's the purpose of these prophecies. You know, I think the second most critical thing is Jesus has always had a plan. He continues to have a plan. And that plan was being revealed in Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey on that particular day. This is all part of the plan. And if we go, if we continue here, know and understand this, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So if you want to add all of those together, right, we, the last seven hasn't been talked about, so we're just talking about the first group of 62 sevens and seven sevens, which happens to be 69 sevens, right? So what is that? 483 years, I think, if I remember correctly. So 483 years, then um, that's when the anointed ruler will come. It'll... Uh, the, the, so from the time the temple will be re- rebuilt, and then in verse 26 it says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. So I think that's talking about, uh, about Jesus dying, coming and dying. Like that will be the end to that particular, to, to that particular time. And then, and then that leaves one more group of sevens for the future. You know, we're not going to talk about the future because what I said earlier, I'm not, I'm not sure we can even come up with a great understanding of it. Read it, look at it. That's great, great to understand. But what I get at is the people in Jesus' time, when Jesus was coming, would have been looking at that. They would have said, hey, I, I know when the temple rebuild was given. So we would have known what was the 483 years to get us to this point. The short of it is people were expecting the Messiah. They were. People were expecting the Messiah to come sometime, right? Let's even think about in the temple. There were two people who were in the temple waiting for Jesus to come, right? There was, I think it was Zachariah and there was Anna. And they were sitting and they were waiting in the temple and God had revealed to them that you would get to see the Messiah before you die, right? And I think part of that revealing would have come through this, through this prophecy, Part of it would have been specific in their lives, but what I'm getting at is there is this anticipation. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming. 
Everybody was waiting for the Messiah. He was going to come. And, and I think that's really significant. Why did all these events become so big and so many people gathering? Whoa, maybe this is that prophecy that was going to be fulfilled. Everybody shows up and now he's riding on a donkey. He's coming into Jerusalem, which is something that a king would do when they're coming into an area. This is it. The king is coming. And everybody was thinking the king is coming to what? To set us free from the Romans. That's what people are thinking as they're coming here. That's what the crowds are all gathering around. And when you understand that mentality and then you go, well, why did all the crowds take off when Jesus was going to be crucified? Well, clearly they were wrong, right? Like this was supposed to be the king. He was going to free us. He was going to set us free. And now he's being crucified. This, this, you know, we missed it. We misunderstood the prophecy of, of what was going to happen. Why else is this prophecy key? Is nothing can happen that stops God from his plans being fulfilled. It's gonna happen. God, God is planning for this. And nothing that people could do, all sorts of people tried, tried in all sorts of different ways to stop his plans, but nothing could. You know, the last way I think the prophecy is key is God knows what the future holds. He understands And what's he doing? He's inviting us to walk in relationship with him as he knows and he understands that. We can get a piece of it. We can understand a piece of what is going on. And so then we we, we have two things, right? We can do what the people say. Let's try and force him to be king so that he will accomplish what we want. Or we can say, no, okay, we are going to walk in relationship with you and we're going to see where you go. You know, in Hebrews, it talks about entering the holy rest. And I think this is a picture of it. The holy rest is one where we say, okay, God, you're the one doing it. It's not me doing it. So, you know, let, let me just make it just, just personal. We all have situations. We all have challenges that we're in that we face. We face situations where we have to decide, are we going to try and fight to make this happen? Are we going to wait on God's timing? Are we going to wait for God's timing? And, and sometimes we try and force things before it's the right time before it's the time that God wants us to. And so, as I, as I think about that, like my heart or my prayer in that is, God, make me a person who's willing to wait, make me a person who's willing to hear your word, make me a person who's willing to walk step by step with you rather than feeling like, no, I need to understand all the pieces. I, I think that's where I'm gonna end. And, and so those are my musings, some musings on prophecy, musings on what was going on at the time, what was key about it, what was tied to it. And so, Pam, why don't you come up and share some of your musings? Okay, well, I kept listening to Dwayne talk and talk, and I'm like, oh, he's going to say everything I want to say. But um, my, my thoughts weren't quite so focused on the prophecies and stuff. But how he ended up, um, he was talking about um, our longings, right? Like our longing is for a king, a savior, somebody to rule. But what is that to walk in relationship with that king? Because we say we want those things. But when the rubber hits the road, do we really want that ruler or that king 
to lead if they don't lead the way we want them to lead? That's, that's I think, a question. But, and so, um, what would have been the typical fanfare of the king, Dwayne mentioned, somebody coming in. Um, some of the research that I did would often have been the bigger the fanfare, the bigger the horse, the bigger the whatever, but he came in on a donkey. Do you know the significance of a donkey? It was an image of peace. Huh, okay. Savior, save us! But what have they seen? The rulers are fighting, they're like, yeah, they're, they're using their power in ways that have been hurtful, um, oppressive, and he is coming in as the king, but on a donkey. Not only a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Oh my. <laughs> um, you think, and that was um, in, in Zechariah, but also in in, in the Gospels, it mentions that it's a donkey, and he comes in gentle and humble. So our king is coming in gentle and humble. So how do we follow his lead? Um, also in 1 Timothy 4, um, I was working through this with the ladies in Bible study this last week, and it says, this is a trust, trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. All men. Do you know what? Sometimes, too, we want that king to save us and beat down that person over there. The king, do you know what? My situation is more important, and my circumstances and the problems that I'm going through, and yeah, he can kind of leave that person out of the picture. But he's coming to be the savior of all men. And that's who he is. And when we realize who our king is, not who we want him to be, um, that sheds light on who we are and our identity, or who we maybe not are, right? He says, who is the savior of all men? Our tendency is to go, he's the savior of me. Me. Not all. Not us unified. He's the savior of me. And... Um, He's a hope of our living God. Our living God, but even if you look all through the Bible, how easy it is, our, our, tendency, our tendency is to make up gods or hold on to or um, grab onto things that fulfill us, that are predictable, that are a little bit in our control. The idol. The, the God that we can go to when we feel we need help, the, um, the thing, addiction, the, the thing that will somehow soothe our problems, and then we'll be all fine, and then we'll go to something again, or go back to God when things aren't going our way. So who we are really is without hope, in need of a savior, 
and um, we often want things to be our way. So it's easy to go fight, fight for our way, or to avoid our problems. Um, and so when we know who we are um, and our identity, um, that also helps us know how to see the world or how we tend to see the world. So, um, because our God is our savior and our living hope, then these things that I was talking about, uh, how does that shed light on who we are now? We are saved. We have hope. We have a living God who wants to be engaged in relationship all the time, not just when we think we need him. And um, and so when we start looking at our world overwhelmed, um, not just, don't just look at God then and demand help. And, but that's what, as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, a lot of them were, I think, not, I'm not speaking for everybody, but there was a Hosanna, like Jen mentioned. There was a Hosanna praise, but the Hosanna, save us and save us now. And in that, when the circumstances deteriorate, um, we tend to doubt who he is and question his character. We think we want comfort, power, control, but that doesn't satisfy. Um, in Luke also, it talked of, um, and I won't read it right now, but that's something that stood out to me from that, that thing in Luke it mentioned that he looked over Jerusalem and the people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and, and he said, you don't realize what is here and haven't accepted, um, haven't accepted what is before you, the peace that he is offering. And because of that, um, you'll face more trials and stuff. Oh, now I'm forgetting the right words. It says, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from our eyes, your eyes, and what brings us peace is that relationship with God. Um, instead of just assuming that he will do it. And so when they didn't see him for who he was, they cut off their hearts from relationship. Right? When, when you close off being in relationship and going through the hard, uncomfortable with somebody else, you close yourself off to listening you close yourself off from asking questions. You close yourself off from seeking. 
And he wants us to seek first the kingdom of God rather than our own comforts, our own rights. And so, because he is inviting us into relationship, um, it's tough. It's uncomfortable. It's hard to step into that relationship with him. He is our king, and we want to... Um, I know Jen was... These songs were so good for me this morning. It said, Hosanna, you are the one who saves. We welcome you, Lord Jesus. Do you know what you're saying? Lord? That means you're bowing down before him and he's the one who's saving and he's the leader are you going to follow him because he might save you in a way that you weren't expecting and it says amazing love that you my king would die for me i will honor you um, in all i do so what does that mean for how we live today um, one last thing that I had thought or had seen was, you remember during this week, um, Jesus invited his disciples into the garden to pray with him. And he said, watch with me. Not fight, not flight, not lay down and rest, Um, not join the army and pick up your swords and let's take on everything, but be present in relationship and watch with me. And as you're going into this week, I don't know, that, that for me was a very good challenge. Watch with him. And I think as you are walking with him and watching with him, there's a peace that will be in your hearts that will be so strong that no matter if the waves are big around you, I'm thinking of the boat too, right? If our eyes are on God, it doesn't matter how big the waves are, but that it matters where our eyes are on God. Jen, do you want to come up and lead us in a final song? Pam, I really like that. The, the watch with me. I, I, I wonder what it was that he was thinking to watch. You know, maybe he was saying, just sit down and watch my father work. Watch his plan come together. Watch him knit all of these things together in ways that you wouldn't know or you wouldn't understand. And that's a beautiful perspective. You know, it's not, not the fighting, not the doing. Let's just sit down and watch and let's see in the amazing ways that God is going to work. And so, Jesus, make us watchers. People who love to watch and see what you're doing. Who love to watch and see how you're working in people's lives around us. Who loves to watch and see how you want to change our circumstances. And you want to turn our difficult stories into stories of grace and stories of beauty. Amen.